Tonight is part two of the message that we had this morning. So if you're here this morning, then you kind of have the the basis covered. And if you weren't, then you're going to take like 10 minutes trying to figure out what we're talking about. But uh, no, just kidding. Turn to uh, Ruth with me in chapter 4 and we'll do some reading. Stand with me when you find it. Ruth chapter 4. How many of you, you think that the book of Ruth is one of your favorite Old Testament books? I see hands all around. I, I read this story and I just can't get over it. I feel like the emotional uh, attachment that we get to the characters in this story is overwhelming. I, as a matter of fact, it, well, not to sound weird, but I feel like this is one of the roman- most romantic books I've ever read. And if you, if, you, if you read through it and just think about how Ruth stu- uh, took steps of faith and then watch how God brought her the man of her dreams, it's a pretty amazing story. And uh, anyway, we'll just give God the glory for what he's done in this incredible story. But follow along with me as I read, starting in verse number 9. And we're going to, Brother Joe, I told you it was verse 9 through 14. It's actually 9 through 12. And so that's what we're going to read. So follow along as I read out loud. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto the, all the people, ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that, is Elim, that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and all that was, and, and Malon's and of the, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his people. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman... <clears throat> that is come into thine house, like Rachel and like Leah, which uh, two did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Terah, Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Uh, what's happening here is Boaz had done all of the things, all the, had met all the legal requirements for Ruth to become his wife. But there was one more step that he wanted to take just to bring validity and so that no question could be asked in the future about the decision that was made on that day. And what he needed was witnesses. It's pretty neat that there were people standing there who saw what happened and decided they were going to become a witness. And I hope tonight that that's your prayer too. That you would say, you know what? I've seen God do a lot of amazing things. I'd, I'd like to be a witness. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father, I pray your blessings. Help us to, Lord, just have a kind of trust in you tonight that you're going to speak to us at our great need. And Lord, perhaps you'll speak to us in a way that we weren't expecting, but whatever it is that you do in our hearts, I pray that tonight our, our response would be, yes, Lord, yes. Even before we start, God, that we would declare that when we hear from you, we're going to obey. Be a doer of the word. We'll give you glory for what you do, what you've already done. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, as we saw this morning, Naomi and Ruth, they didn't have a lot. When they came to Bethlehem back from Moab, they would have been women in the hands of God, most literally, just not having anything to rely on, not having security, not having a financial uh, um, 
you know, status that would have taken care of their great needs, just literally in the hands of God. And as we mentioned this morning, there's not a whole lot of better place than you can be than in the hands of God. I think, as a matter of fact, we would all agree that there's no better place than you can be than just right in the hands of God. You say, well, our finances aren't too good, but if you're in the hands of God, you're in a good place. Are you obeying God? Are you walking with Him? Have you done what God wants you to do? Then you're in a good place. And I think Naomi and Ruth, although there would have been a kind of anxiety there uh, from time to time trying to deal with the emotion of not knowing the future or what's going to happen uh, in relationship to their great needs and how is God going to meet these needs. But they, but they moved forward nonetheless, putting themselves in the hands of God and God was faithful as God always is, God to, uh, to take care of them. So in their poverty, in their distress, God bringing them to Boaz, Boaz making the commitment and finalizing the transaction to take Naomi and Ruth as not a kind of possession to be purchased, but to accept the proposal and to say, I want to take on this responsibility because I have a deep, enduring love and care for you. I think that's fantastic. And so he made the commitment. It was confirmed with the gesture of taking the shoe and and passing it it on to the one uh, who would have been uh, or the one who would have had the authority to pass on this land in the purchase. And with that gesture, um, Boaz come, becoming the owner of the land and also one who had the legal right to Naomi and Ruth. Can you imagine? We didn't, we didn't really labor on, the, on, on it this morning, but could you imagine the feeling that Ruth would have had? That she she would have not known her future. In fact, she would have been leaning towards, I'm just never going to get married. She would have been leaning towards, I'm just never going to have children. And she was okay with that if that was what God wanted wanted in her life. But she put herself in the hands of God, and now God sent Boaz And all of the things that she thought she may never have, God has provided the possibility for it. Can you imagine the joy that would have been flooding into her soul? I think that if we would emotionally get attached to this, it would have been a kind of overwhelming feeling. I'm redeemed. I'm secure. I'm at peace. I'm taken care of there's not a whole lot that would have been more satisfying than how she was in that state. And I think that we can relate to it the day we got saved. This morning, I mentioned about Christ becoming our Redeemer and how we can relate to this story in that regard, that God saved our soul. Remember the day you got saved? Remember when He became your Redeemer? That was a blessed day. And there's not a whole lot in life that can compare to that, but I can tell you there's a couple of things that that uh, can make us discouraged in life even after we've been saved, what is that? When you start doubting your salvation, is there anything that's more discouraging or, or uh, difficult to deal with than when you're not sure if you're saved? I remember the day I mentioned this morning I got saved. I'll never forget the day. But I didn't have a pastor there, a youth pastor, to tell me, Amen, you just got saved. You know, I just got up the next day and went to school. 
And I knew there was a transformation. And looking back, I'll, I'll, I, I can tell you there were changes that I remember God immediately made in my life. But a year went by and another year went by and I was in church and I started to wonder if I was really saved. And then it got more intense. And I remembered sitting in chapel and we had a guest preacher in our school chapel that day. And he was preaching along and he got excited. You know how sometimes there's a, a communion table at the front? Our church in Oklahoma had a communion table at the front. And he started taking all the flowers and stuff off of the communion table. And we're thinking, what's he going to do? This guy's a little bit crazy. So, I mean, you don't know what he's going to do. So he crawls up on the communion table. And he's on his hands and his knees. And he begins to cry out to God. And, and, and he's begging God, please forgive me and please save me. And he was doing that because he was illustrating that sometimes people are already saved. And they still go to the altar and ask God to save them. And I thought, man, that's what I'm doing. I've been going to the altar week after week and just hopeful that God will save me this time. And after that sermon, I went to the altar and it was a different kind of approach to God in that moment. Because when I got to the altar, I didn't need to ask Him to save me. Because God confirmed in me that I was already saved. That's a peaceful day, isn't it? It's a peaceful day when you get saved. It's a peaceful day when you don't doubt your salvation. Ruth and Naomi would have had a peace in their life that they hadn't had, but I think that they didn't think that they could have. God's providing for them. God is going to take care of them. He's going to fulfill them. And on that day when we had Christ save our soul, there was a substitute that nothing else in this world can give us. There's a fulfillment that Christ gives us that nothing else in this world can satisfy. C.S. Lewis said it like this, we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and minds. And the implication is that only God can satisfy the God-shaped vacuum. And when He does, there is satisfaction. There is peace. Like the song, I have a Christ who satisfies to do His will my highest prize since I have been redeemed. Dispelling every doubt and fear since I have been redeemed. I have a home prepared for me where I shall dwell eternally since I have been redeemed. Man searches. Mankind searches for that kind of peace and he'll never find it because it can only be found in Christ. Christ is the only one who can satisfy the God-shaped vacuum that we have. And so the deal was done. The peace is, is there. And so now Boaz is taking steps moving forward because the requirements have already been met. Now he wants, what he wants to do is give a, an authenticity in this transaction so that it could never be questioned. The sandal was a witness. And in the day, the sandal was enough. But Boaz said, I'd like to have a little bit more of an authenticity in this commitment, this transaction that took place than just the sandal. There's a bunch of people here. There's, there's, ten, there's ten in the quorum Ten elders, but this is in the gathering place or in the place of business in the gates and just people walking by would have seen the happenings and would have stopped. 
just to watch what was happening. And they became witnesses too. And Boaz says, what I desire this day is that all of you that are here, all of you that are watching, and all of you that saw this transaction that took place, I want you all to become witnesses to this. Look at verse 9. Boaz said unto the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day. Look at the last part of verse 10. You are witnesses this day. The word witness here means testimony or an evidence. Those elders represented a kind of testimony that the proceedings were legal. And the process Boaz had went through was all legal. They represented that. And what he was saying is now, not only is this sandal that I have a a testimony, you're a testimony, you're an evidence, because you were here and you saw it happen. And so, in the future, Boaz, perhaps the acquisition of the property, the acquisition of the relationship between him and Ruth being a Moabitess could have fallen under question as whether or not it was legitimate. And he had the sandal, but he also had a host of witnesses. Names that he could call on and say, I have others that can validate the truthfulness behind what happened today. I want you to think about it like this. When a sermon is preached, that a pastor says uh, the message and he believes the message. Can I say that whenever a pastor preaches a message, he's in a lot of trouble if he doesn't believe it. But from my experience, that's not usually the problem. I believe what I'm preaching. Sometimes it's a problem for me to live it out, but it's not because I don't believe it. I believe the message, and I'll preach it with passion, and I'll preach it with fervor. So the problem is not whether or not I believe it. Can I also say that it's probably not a problem with most of you that are in here? If you brave the weather on this night, likely everything you're going to hear out of that book, you believe it. And so the problem isn't whether or not you believe the message. But we live in a world who hears the Word of God and they don't believe it like you do. They come to church and they're already skeptical about it. Some of you, you haven't perhaps been saved that long. Remember when you first came to church? Remember the questions that you had in your heart? Remember when you sat and you were hearing the sermons and you were wondering... Is this really true? You were wondering, you know, I get it, the pastor's preaching it. Does he really believe this? And maybe he's coming across in a way that it's, you, there's no way you can question whether or not the pastor believes it. So then you're wondering, does anybody else in here believe this? And lost people do that. They have a bent towards seeing the gospel as something that they struggle with. Something that they're not sure if they can trust it or not. Paul verified this. It's validated. You can read it through the New Testament quite a bit. Where Paul said it clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, to the preaching of the gospel to them that perish is foolishness. 
And that's the tendency where you have people come and they hear the sermon and they're wondering, is this really true? Do these people really believe it? Reminds me of uh, the Apostle Paul, or rather Stephen, in chapter 7 of Acts. And he, he was a preacher of the Word of God. Read chapter 7. I mean, this guy stands up for the Word of God. He stands up for the truth. And he, he knows who he's talking to. And he begins to go through the history of the nation of Israel and show them all through their history. By the way, if you're a Jew and a, and a, and a preacher gets up and starts bringing up the Jewish history and starts talking about Moses and starts talking about the law and starts talking about the prophet. I mean, I mean the, those Jews are excited to hear this message. But do you know what Stephen did? He brought up a topic they loved to hear and then told them how every prophet of God the Jews rejected. As a matter of fact, they didn't just reject, they murdered them. All of them along the way until the final Messiah Finally, the Messiah came and they rejected him too and they crucified him on the cross. And he says, and it's you who did it. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Talk about hard preaching. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. So he told them what they needed to hear. What did they do in response? You're right, Stephen. Amen. Let's have an altar call and we'll all get saved. They didn't say that. As a matter of fact, you know the story. Stephen becomes the first martyr. They took him and dragged him out of the city, threw him in a pit, and they began to, with the first being the authority, likely Saul himself casting the first stone, and then all of Israel beginning to throw stones until Stephen lifts his hands, being bloodied with the stones, uh, announcing he sees the, the heavens opened already, but commends his spirit to the Lord, but before he did, saying these amazing words. Uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That was Stephen. And that was the response to the Gospel. And people don't change a lot. People still respond like that today. They might not take the pastor out and stone him, but sometimes in their heart they would love to. But there's a rejection to the Gospel. And they come to... Watch, watch. They come to church like that. It's already there. So here's what they need. They need that the message would be preached and validated by witnesses. Guess who that is? The pastor's there. He's preaching the gospel. But the pastor sure would love to have more witnesses. He would sure have to love to have people who would say, I was there. I, I believe this message. That's what saying amen is all about, isn't it? Yep. It brings validation to the truthfulness of the message. <clears throat> Paul understood how important unity in the church was. Did you know that you're not going to be able to leave, rather reach lost people in St. Joe, Missouri if there's not unity here in the church? Uh, let me read a scripture to you. Don't turn there, but in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's unity in the church. And so the church needs to be unified. Well, what, why is that so important? Well, he says in verse 15 in the same context, why? 
And here's what he said, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, note this, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. (laughs) So the unity of the church, God said, will become a bright light shining in the world. So when when the church is in unity behind the message that's being preached, it becomes a bright light for those that are wondering if it's true. Wondering if it's true for them. So what does that mean about those who come to church and they have a critical attitude about church? Or they have a critical attitude about anything that's being done at the church or even the leadership of the church? Then here's what it means. It affects the unity of the church and then it hinders the spread of the gospel. So it does matter if we're at odds with somebody in the church. You say, oh, it doesn't matter that much. It does matter. It affects the spirit of the church. It is, if the unity of the church is affected, it affects the spirit of the church. And it affects the light of the church and whether or not you're going to reach more people or not. <clears throat> Lost people are already wondering about it. And when we're not in unity, it only makes it harder for them to believe the message that's being preached from the pulpit. Can I say it like this? We already have shown that they're doubting, they're wondering if it's true when they come. And if you're wondering if it's true too, it's going to make it hard for them to be convinced that it's true. Boaz understood that one day this transaction might be questioned as legitimate. And so he wanted to have a testimony, a witness. And maybe we could say it like this. Boaz is there and he has the crowd of witnesses. And he says like this. Is there anyone here who watched this take place who would say amen to what happened here tonight? Is there anybody who would say amen to this? Is there anyone who would say, I'm a witness and I can validate the truthfulness of what's happening here? That's what he asked. Well, look at verse 11. All the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we're witnesses. So they said, we'll, I'll be, I'll, we'll be a witness. I'll be a willing witness to the transaction, the redemption transaction that just took place. One writer said it like this, there was no biblical Hebrew word for the word yes, so they declared their response by repeating Boaz's last sentence, affirming unanimously witnesses. So the imagery is like this. Boaz said, is there anybody who will be a witness this day? And it's as though everyone raised their hand and said, we are witnesses, or we could say it this way, they just said the word witness. Witness, witness, witness. So Boaz had witnesses, and God would use that to validate the truthfulness, the validity of what happened or transacted on that day. Did you know that the Word of God is preached every time you walk into this place? I can tell you that for sure. And I'm pretty sure it was declared this morning too. So when the message is being preached and you're here 
to hear this message. I think that sometimes we forget that the one who is preaching isn't the only one who affects whether or not somebody's going to get saved that day. Well, the pastor, you know, if he would have done a little bit better, so-and-so may have got saved today. I think that we're missing a little bit here. I think that we forget that we have something to do with this too. So the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of God's people said, and the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a place called hell. People really do go there. We need to spread the gospel. It's our job to to get the gospel to the lost. And we declare it and we preach it. And we tell people, you need to be saved. You say, well, you know, I'm just kind of hanging on for that day. No, no, no. Don't hang on for that day. There's a pointed out day that we're going to die. And after that, the judgment. There's a great white throne judgment comes. It's coming. And we need to be prepared for that day. Jesus says, in that day, many will say unto me, uh, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In other words, haven't we said all these things in your name? Haven't we done things for you, Jesus? And in thy name, cast out many devils. Look at all these wonderful uh, things that I did for you by casting out demons and, and, and helping people with their life. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And Jesus looks at them and he will profess on that day to many, Jesus said, Matthew seven twenty one. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Question, does Jesus not know everybody? No way, he's God. He knows everybody. So when Jesus said, I never knew you, it doesn't mean he doesn't know who you are. It means that He doesn't have a relationship with you. It means there's no intimacy there. Because you never turned your heart to Christ. You don't get saved through some process. You don't get saved because uh, you know, you're going to just sort of roll into it someday. You don't get saved because, you know, I've been to church and, and I got baptized and, and I gave, you know, I really gave a lot to the church and I've done a lot of really great stuff and surely God's going to let me go to heaven. It doesn't work like that. And you get saved and you turn your heart to Christ and He becomes your kinsman redeemer. That's the message of the gospel. And we're going to preach that whether we're in Fall City, Nebraska, or that message is going to be preached right here at Riverside Baptist Church. And on a weekly basis, we're going to be telling people about God. We're going to be telling people about salvation. It's going to sound some just like what you just heard. And you know what needs to happen after these things are declared? All of God's people need to say, Amen! Amen. Or witness. I'm a witness. Because it, it validates the message in the minds, in the hearts of the people who are around you. It makes a difference. When I moved to Fall City, nobody said amen. And it's not like very many say amen now. I preached this sermon last week. Was it last week, Brother Tim? Okay, last week. And I asked Brother Chad, I said, is Brother Tim going to be in there? I had to have at least one amen or in there. Or this sermon is not going to go good. You know. We're working on Brother Josh though, aren't we? 
we started talking about food and he said amen. So, it's starting to work. When you, when you get behind the message, it validates it. The people that are around you who are wondering whether or not it's true and whether or not they need to get to the altar and get saved, it helps them when you get behind the message. Because they're, they're thinking, well, I get it, the pastor believes it, but he's the pastor, I mean. But wait a second, there's like 50 people in here who also believe this. And God uses that to stir in the heart. We said it this morning, to prick the heart. To bring conviction. Yeah, Influence them to come. Get it taken care of. To get saved. God can use you to do that. Did you know that God can use you to help people get saved when you're not at church too? You think we can say amen when we're at church, but how when we're not at church? Do we just roll our window down and holler witness to people and throw tracks at them? No. I love this. You can validate what's happening at Riverside Baptist Church out there. You know, there are a lot of people, I would guess, who don't have good things to say about Riverside Baptist Church. Maybe not a lot of people, but maybe some people. There might be some people who just don't know. Do you know what's going to help them to know that what's happening here is pretty incredible? Is when you tell them. When you say, you know what, what's happening at Riverside Baptist Church, it's pretty incredible. I just have one thing to say. I'm a witness. You know how I know that it's incredible here? Because I was there. I'm pretty much regularly there. I witness it happen. So I can validate that what happens at Riverside is amazing. And then people out there say, oh, really? I'm interested now. God will use you in the church to help people get saved, but God will use you outside of the church to help people get here and get saved. It's the same concept. If you complain about the church, about your pastor when you're not here, did you realize that you're helping people not to get saved? You are contributing to them having a hard time getting their heart right with God, having a hard time getting to this altar, to have a hard time. If we complain about the church, we don't make it easier for people to get right with God. You say, well, I, I got offended. I get it. It happens. Well, I'm, I'm genuinely upset about these things. I get it too. It does happen. But God told us how to deal with those things. Matthew chapter 18, go to them and deal with it. Did you know to deal with something with someone else in the church doesn't mean that you have to go to six other people and talk about it before you go to them? You can just go right to them and get it taken care of. And that way, those six other people don't have to hear you complain about the church or your pastor or anybody. And then when God is working in their heart at the church, they're not thinking about all that crud that you put in their minds about pastor while he's preaching. They can just listen to the message and get to the altar. God can use you. You say, well, I'm, I, I'm just me, and I don't, I don't, I'm not a preacher. I'll never be a preacher, and I, I'll never be able to you know, win people to Christ. And I'll never... Listen, you're a part of it every time you validate what's happening here. You contribute to people being saved when you're behind the message. 
when you're behind the church, when you're behind the pastor. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be witnesses to the truthfulness that's declared at this church. It's not just a right or a privilege to be here. It is a blessing to be here, but it's not just a blessing and a right and a privilege. You have a responsibility, a responsibility to be a witness, to say this, I believe this. I'm behind what's happening here. I'm excited about this message. Get involved. Say amen. Say I'm a witness. Tell others about what's happening. Love your neighbors. In the name of Christ, be an encouragement. God will use you. There is a... um, I would say a couple of years ago, we had a shirt made. It says, I love my church, you know, and we love, that was a great shirt. You know, we've had great shirts, but y'all better not copy this because we're going to do another shirt. I don't care if you copy it. Our camp shirt, God willing this year, it's going to say, I'm a witness. What's it going to say on the back? Valley Avenue Baptist Church preaches truth. I'm a witness. Amen. And every person who not only wears the shirt but lives it, God will use you every time somebody gets saved. God uses you. And so we're in this together. It's like Boaz says, who, do I have a witness tonight? Do I have, do I have somebody who says, do I have anybody tonight who, who, who will be behind this message? Will any of God's people say amen? Yeah. And we're ready to reach people, aren't we? Amen. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we're thankful for how You <clears throat> give us the opportunity to declare Your Word and to say, <clears throat> to say the things, Lord, that You lead us to say, to, to know, Lord, that Lord, to know that what we're doing tonight is its not about us, but it's all about You. It's Your Word. It's Your message. I pray You'd help us to be faithful, committed servants. Help us to be behind our church, behind our pastor, behind our, the messages. Lord, if there's issues, that we would deal with them quickly. That You'd use us, Lord, to be a testimony that more people might be saved. Or it might be that somebody needs to just come to the altar and do some business with you. I pray you'd help them to do that tonight. Give them courage to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with them about. Or we just ask you to help us tonight to win more people for you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Every head's bowed. The altars are open. If God's worked in your heart, won't you come?